0: chapter eleven part one of the rainbow trail by zane gray this librivox recording is in the public domain after the trial part one shefford might have leaped over the railing but for wither's restraining hand and when there appeared to be some sign of kindness in those other women for the unconscious girl shefford squeezed through the crowd and got out of the hall the gang outside that had been denied admittance pressed upon Shefford with jest and curious query, and a good nature that jarred upon him. He was far from gentle as he jostled off the first importuning fellows, the others, gaping at him, opened the lane for him to pass through. Then there was a hand laid on his shoulder that he did not shake off. Nas Bega loomed dark and tall beside him. Neither the Trader nor Joe Lake, nor any white man Shefford had met, influenced him as this Navajo. "'Nas Bega, you're here too? I guess the whole country is here. We waited at Cayenta. What kept you so long?' The Indian, always slow to answer, did not open his lips till he drew Shefford apart from the noisy crowd. "'By nigh, there is sorrow in the Hogan of Hostine Doton,' he said. "'Glen Nespa!' exclaimed Shefford. "'My sister is gone from the home of her brother. "'She went away alone in the summer. "'Blue Canyon? "'She went to the missionary? "'Nas Bega, I thought I saw her there, but I wasn't sure. "'I didn't want to make sure. "'I was afraid it might be true. "'A brave who loved my sister trailed her there. "'Nas Ta will you? "'Will we go find her? "'Take her home?' No, she will come home some day. What bitter sadness and wisdom in his words. But my friend, that damned missionary, began Shefford passionately. The Indian had met him at a bad hour. Willets is here. I saw him go in there, interrupted Nas Ta Bega, and he pointed to the hall. Here he gets around a good deal, declared Shefford. Nas Ta Bega, what are you going to do to him? The Indian held his peace, and there was no telling from his inscrutable face what might be in his mind. He was dark impassive. He seemed a wise and bitter Indian, beyond any savagery of his tribe, and the suffering Shefford divined was deep. "'He'd better keep out of my sight,' muttered Shefford, more to himself than to his companion. "'The half-breed is here,' said Nastebega. Bega. "'Shad? Yes, we saw him, too. There.' He's still with his gang. Nas, ta what are they up to? They will steal what they can. Withers says Shad, is friendly with the Mormons. Yes, and with the missionaries, too. With Willits? I saw them talk together, strong talk. Strange, but maybe it's not so strange. Shad is known well in Monticello and Bluff. He spends money there. They are afraid of him, but he's welcome just the same. Perhaps everybody knows him. It'd be like him to ride in the Cayenta, But, Nas Ta Bega, I've got to look out for him, because Withers says he's after me. By nigh, wears a scar that is proof, said the Indian. Then it must be he found out long ago I had a little money. It might be, but by nigh, the half-breed has a strange step on your trail. What do you mean? demanded Shefford. Nas Ta Bega cannot tell what he does not know. Replied the Navajo, "Let that be. We shall know some day. By nigh, there is sorrow to tell. That is not the Indians' sorrow for my brother." Shefford lifted his eyes to the Indians, and if he did not see sadness there, he was much deceived. By nigh, long ago, you told a story to the trader. Nas Ta Bega sat before the fire that night. You did not know he could understand your language. He listened, and he learned what brought you to the country of the Indian. That night he made you his brother. All his lonely rides into the canyon have been to find the little golden-haired child, the lost girl, Fay Larkin. By nigh, I have found the girl you wanted for your sweetheart. Shefford was bereft of speech. He could not see steadily, and the last solemn words of the Indian seemed far away. nigh, I have found Fay Larkin, repeated Nastebega. Bega. Faye Larkin, gasped Shefford, shaking his head. But she's dead. It would be less sorrow for Bainai if she were dead. Shefford clutched at the Indian. There was something terrible to be revealed. Like an aspen leaf in the wind, he shook all over. He divined the revelation, divined the coming blow but that was as far as his mind got. "'She's in there,' said the Indian, pointing toward the hall. "'Fay Larkin?' whispered Shefford. "'Yes, by nigh.' "'My God, how do you know? "'Oh, I could have seen. "'I've been blind. "'Tell me, Indian, which one?' "'Fay Larkin is the Sago Lily.' Shefford strode away into a secluded corner of the square, where, in the shade and quiet of the trees, he suffered a storm of heart and mind. During that short or long time, he had no idea how long, the Indian remained with him. He never lost the feeling of Naste Bega close beside him. When the period of acute pain left him and some order began to replace the tumult in his mind, he felt in Nastebega Bega the same quality, silence or strength or help, that he had learned to feel in the deep canyon and the lofty crags. He realized then that the Indian was indeed a brother, and Shefford needed him. What he had to fight was more fatal than suffering and love. It was hate rising out of the unsuspected dark gulf of his heart, the instinct to kill, the murder in his soul. Only now did he come to understand Jane Withersteen's tragic story, and the passion of venters and what had made lassiter a gunman the desert had transformed shefford the elements had entered into his muscle and bone into the very fiber of his heart sun wind sand cold storm space stone the poisoned cactus the racking toil the terrible loneliness the iron of the desert man the cruelty of the desert savage the wildness of the mustang the ferocity of hawk and wolf, the bitter struggle of every surviving thing, these were as if they had been melted and merged together, and now made a dark and passionate stream that was his throbbing blood. He realized what he had become, and gloried in it, yet there, looking on with grave and earnest eyes, was his old self, the man of reason, of intellect, of culture. Who had been a good man despite the failure and shame of his life, and he gave heed to the voice of warning of conscience. Not by revengefully seeking the Mormon who had ruined Fay Larkin and blindly dealing a wild justice could he help this unfortunate girl. This fierce new-born strength and passion must be tempered by reason, lest he become merely elemental a man answering wholly to primitive impulses. In the darkness of that hour, he mined deep into his heart, understood himself, trembled at the thing he faced, and won his victory. He would go forth from that hour a man. He might fight, and perhaps there was death in the balance, but hate would never overthrow him. Then when he looked at future action, he felt a strange, unalterable purpose to save Fay Larkin. She was very young. Seventeen or eighteen, she had said. And there could be, there must be, some happiness before her. It had been his dream to chase a rainbow. It had been his determination to find her in the lost Surprise Valley. Well, he had found her. It never occurred to him to ask Nastebega Bega how he had discovered that Sago Lily was Fay Larkin. The wonder was, Shefford thought, that he had so long been blind himself. How simply everything worked out now, every thought, every recollection of her was proof. Her strange beauty like that of the sweet and rare lily, her low voice that showed the habit of silence, her shapely hands with the clasp strong as a man's, her lithe form, her swift step, her wonderful agility upon the smooth, steep trails and the wildness of her upon the heights and the haunting brooding shadow of her eyes when she gazed across the canyon all these fitted so harmoniously the conception of a child lost in a beautiful surprise valley and growing up in its wildness and silence tutored by the sad love of broken jane and lassiter yes the savor had been shefford's dream and he had loved that dream he had loved the dream, and he had loved the child. The secret of her hiding place, as revealed by the story, told him, and his slow growth from dream to action, these had strangely given Fay Larkin to him. Then had come the bitter knowledge that she was dead. In the light of this subsequent revelation, how easy to account for his loving Mary, too. Never would she be Mary again to him. Fay Larkin and the Sago Lily, were one and the same. She was here, near him, and he was powerless for the present to help her or to reveal himself. She was held back there in that gloomy hall among those somber Mormons, alien to the women, bound in some fatal way to one of the men, and now by reason of her weakness in the trial surely to be hated. Thinking of her past and her present, of the future, and that secret Mormon whose face she had never seen, Shefford felt a sinking of his heart, a terrible cold pang in his breast, a fainting of his spirit. She had sworn she was no sealed wife, but had she not lied, so then how utterly powerless he was. But here to save him, to uplift him, came that strange mystic insight which had been the gift of the desert to him. She was not dead. He had found her, what mattered obstacles, even that implacable creed to which she had been sacrificed, in the face of this blessed and overwhelming truth. It was as mighty as the love suddenly dawning upon him. A strong and terrible and deathly sweet wind seemed to fill his soul with the love of her. It was her fate that had drawn him, and now it was her agony, her innocence, her beauty, that bound him for all time. Patience and cunning and toil, passion and blood. The unquenchable spirit of a man to save. These were nothing to give. Life itself were little. Could he but free her? Patience and cunning. His sharpening mind cut these out as his greatest assets for the present, and his thoughts flashed like light through his brain. Judge Stone and his court would fail to convict any Mormon in Stonebridge just the same as they had failed to convict in the northern towns. They would go away, and Stonebridge would fall to the slow, sleepy tenor of its former way. The hidden village must become known to all men, honest and outlawed in that country, but this fact would hardly make any quick change in the plans of the Mormons. They did not soon change. They would send the sealed wives back to the canyon, and after the excitement had died down, visit them as usual. Nothing, perhaps, would ever change these old Mormons but death. Shefford resolved to remain in Stonebridge and ingratiate himself deeper into the regard of the Mormons. He would find work there if the sealed wives were not returned to the hidden village. In case the women went back to the valley, Shefford meant to resume his old duty of driving wither's pack-trains. Wanting that opportunity, he would find some other work, some excuse to take him there. In due time, he would reveal to Fay Larkin that he knew her. How the thought thrilled him. She might deny, might persist in her fear, might fight to keep her secret. But he would learn it, hear her story, hear what had become of Jane Witherstein and Lassiter. And if they were alive, which now he believed, he would find them, and he would take them and Fay out of the country. The duty, the great task, held a grim fascination for him. He had a foreboding of the cost. He had a dark realization of the force he meant to oppose. There were duty here and pity and unselfish love, but these alone did not actuate Shefford. Mystically, fate seemed again to come like a gleam and bid him follow. When Shefford and ta Bega returned to the town hall, the trial had been ended. The hall was closed, and only a few Indians and cowboys remained in the square, and they were about to depart. On the street, however, and the paths and in the doorways of stores were knots of people, talking earnestly. Shefford walked up and down, hoping to meet Withers or Joe Lake. Nastebega Bega said he would take the horses to water and feed and then returned. There were indications that Stonebridge might experience some of the excitement and perhaps violence common to towns like Monticello and Durango. There was only one saloon in Stonebridge, and it was full of roistering cowboys and horse-wranglers. Shefford saw the bunch of Mustangs in charge of the same Indian that belonged to Shad and his gang. The men were inside drinking. Next door was a tavern called Hopewell House, a stone structure of some pretensions. There were Indians lounging outside. Shefford entered through a wide door and found himself in a large bare room boarded like a loft with no ceiling except the roof. The place was full of men and noise. Here he encountered Joe Lake talking to Bishop Kane and other Mormons. Shefford got a friendly greeting from the bishop, and then was well-received by the strangers to whom Joe introduced him. "'Have you seen Withers?' asked Shefford. "'Reckon he's around somewhere,' replied Joe. "'Better hang up here, for he'll drop in sooner or later.' "'When are you going back to Kayenta?' went on Shefford. "'Hard to say. We'll have to call off our hunt. "'Nas Bega is here, too.' "'Yes, I've been with him.' The older Mormons drew aside, and then Joe mentioned the fact that he was half-starved. Shefford went with him into another clappered room, which was evidently a dining room. There were half a dozen men at the long table. The seat at the end was a box, and scarcely large enough or safe enough for Joe and Shefford, but they risked it. "'Saw you in the hall,' said Joe. "'Hell, wasn't it?' "'Joe, I never knew.' "'How much I dare say to you, so I don't talk much.' "'But it was hell,' replied Shefford. "'You needn't be so scared of me,' spoke up Joe testily. "'That was the first time Shefford had heard the Mormon speak that way. "'I'm not scared, Joe, but I like you, respect you. "'I can't say so much of of your people.' "'Did you stick out the whole mix?' asked Joe. "'No, I had enough when when they got through with Mary.' Shefford spoke low and dropped his head. He heard the Mormon grind his teeth. There was silence for a little space, while neither man looked at the other. "'Reckon the judge was pretty decent,' presently said Joe. "'Yes, I thought so. He might have. But Shefford did not finish that sentence. How'd the thing end?' It ended all right. Was there no conviction, no sentence? Shefford felt a curious eagerness. Nah," he snorted the court might have saved its breath i suppose well joe between you and me as old friends now that trial established one fact even if it couldn't be proved those women are sealed wives joe had no reply for that he looked gloomy and there was a stern line in his lips today he seemed more like a mormon judge stone knew that as well as I knew went on shefford any man of penetration could have seen it what an ordeal that was for good women to go through i know they're good and there they were swearing to-didn't it make me sick interrupted joe in a kind of growl reckon it made judge stone sick too after mary went under he conducted that trial like a man cutting out steers at a roundup he wanted to get it over he never forced any question. Bad job to ride down Stonebridge Way. It's out of creation. There's only six men in the party, with a poor lot of horses, really. Government officers or not, they're not safe. And they've taken a hunch. Have they left already? inquired Shefford. Were packed an hour ago. I didn't see them go, but somebody said they went. Took the trail for Bluff which is sure the only trail they could take, unless they wanted to go to Colorado by way of Cayenta, That might have been the safest trail. Joe, what might happen to them? asked Shefford, quietly, with eyes on the Mormon. Ah, oh, you know that rough trail? Bad on horses, weathered slopes, slipping ledges. A rock might fall on you any time. Then Shad's here with his gang and bad Piutes what became of the women shefford asked presently they're around among friends where are their children left over there with the old women couldn't be fetched over but there are some pretty young babies in that bunch need their mothers i should think so replied shefford constrainedly when will their mothers get back to them tonight maybe if this mob of cowpunchers and wranglers get out of town "'It's a bad mix, Shefford. "'Here's a hunch on that. "'These fellows will get full of whiskey, "'and trouble might come if they approach the women.' "'You mean they might get drunk enough "'to take the oaths of those poor women, "'take the meaning literally, pretend to believe the women what they swore they were?' "'Reckon you've got the hunch,' replied Joe gloomily. "'My God, man, that would be horrible!' exclaimed Shefford. "'Horrible or not, it's liable to happen. "'The women can be kept here yet a while. "'Reckon there won't be any trouble here. "'It'll be over there in the valley. "'Shefford, getting the women over there safe "'is a job that's been put to me. "'I've got a bunch of fellows already. "'Can I count on you? "'I'm glad to say you're well thought of. "'Bishop Kane likes you, and what he says goes.' "'Yes, Joe, you can count on me,' replied Shefford. End of chapter 11, part 1